Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter. We're sliding into your podcast feed with a little extra something for you this weekend because there is just so much going on and we need to talk about it. So let's get going. Back in March, Congress passed the CARES Act, a $2 trillion economic relief package tasked with getting money to American people and businesses after coronavirus brought the global economy to a halt. It expanded unemployment benefits, provided direct stimulus payments, and also did things like assisting with federal student loans. But that was more than three months ago, and while wishful thinking had many hoping that by now we'd have a better grip on the virus and the economic downturn, the reality is just the opposite. At the end of this month, the additional $600 per week those on unemployment have come to rely on is in danger of disappearing. Here's what our listeners had to say about what that would mean for them. Florida's maximum benefits are only $275 a week. The extra $600 allows me to stay at home at a time when my state and the county I live in, Miami-Dade, are facing some of the highest numbers of new cases of COVID-19 in the country. Ever since COVID started, obviously, my field has been entirely impossible to work in. Um, can't really have theater without people gathering in large groups, obviously. So Extra 600 has been helping me pay my student loans. It's been helping me make my car payments. It's been helping me pay my rent. If they take the $600 away, um, I am 62 years old. Um, at a higher risk than most uh, workers with some health issues, I wouldn't be able to to pay my rent or uh, any of the other bills that are coming up until some of this um, goes away. On Monday, Congress returns from their July recess, and it's expected that they'll get to work on the latest relief package. Joining me to discuss what we might see Congress try and accomplish is Nick Fandos, congressional correspondent for The New York Times, and Lee Zhou, Congressional correspondent for Vox. At this point, we know quite a bit more about exactly what Democrats are looking for, which is um, predominantly an extension of the unemployment insurance that's currently um, been included in the previous CARES Act, as well as another stimulus check and more money for states and cities. Republicans have kind of balked at all of those things, and it's clear they've become a bit more open to them as the pandemic has worsened Mm. and as it's become clear that even though some states have reopened, the economy hasn't rebounded as expected. Um, In terms of the priorities they're more interested in, one of the common themes has been protecting businesses from um, potential liability they may face from lawsuits um, after the pandemic is over. So that's something they'll be continuing to fight for. Um, But this debate over what that UI package is going to look like and whether there's going to be another stimulus check are two of the areas that will be um, interesting to watch to continue to play out. So what Democrats are saying is, Let's basically continue that. Everybody still gets the same amount of money um, as a stimulus check, a $1,200 check, on top of supplementing unemployment insurance. Is that what they're doing? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And the concern from Republicans is that by continuing to give that extra $600 a week, that um, additional money is deterring people from being Mm -hmm. interested in going back to work because they would get more money potentially from UI than they would from 
their previous wages. Um, the issue there is that many of the jobs that have um, disappeared effectively because of COVID haven't come back. And so we're still seeing an extremely high unemployment rate and extremely high demand for that UI. Um, and on top of that, I think there's um, just the concern that uh, people shouldn't be going back to work right now because it's not safe to do so. Right. Nick, this to me seems like a very interesting tightrope here for Trump, for the White House. You know, on the one hand, you're a president running for reelection in the middle of an economic downturn, recession. And so you would think, hey, let's get as much money into the hands of people right before an election as we possibly can. But that would also, if he does so, if he agrees to this, it would also be an admission that the economy still is pretty bad. And this is a White House that has been saying for a long time now that things are bouncing back, that the roaring economy is on its way. So how do they balance both of those things? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Obviously, the president has been, um, shall we say, optimistic to the point (laughs) of being entirely unrealistic about the the kind of health concerns of the virus um, and, and, you know, predictions of our quick return. Um, but I, I think in the end, his concern about the economy is is going to win out. And while maybe he'll rhetorically continue to suggest this is almost over, the worst is behind us, um, he seems to be very much in favor of pumping a bunch of money into the economy, as does his administration. So the White House is very firmly behind um, these direct payments to sending another direct payment, maybe $1,200 directly to Americans, a check that would have the president's name on it um, in an election season. They, they like that idea. They also continue to push another idea that's pretty unpopular on Capitol Hill, and that's a payroll tax cut um, that would cost a bunch of money. And even Republican senators say really wouldn't be the best way to try and stimulate the economy and would, you know, affect the federal income stream, the coffers. Um, so I, I think in the end, both the White House and Republican senators with an election looming um, and and knowing that the economy has really been one of their strongest selling points um, as a party in the Trump era are going to want to do everything they can to try and um, keep the recovery going, um, to pump federal dollars in it so that things don't don't worsen. And, and I think Democrats realize that. And you heard this week Speaker Nancy Pelosi expressing some confidence that Republicans were moving in her direction of a a kind of bigger bill. I think that's part of the reason why. We also know, Nick, that these bills often become repositories for lots of other priorities that may not necessarily have to do with Mm -hmm. exactly uh, this issue. Are there other things that we think are going to get pushed in there where, you know, Democrats or Republicans see an opportunity to hang something in this must-pass bill? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you raise a very good point, and especially since this is probably going to be the last big bill that Congress mm-hmm. passes before senators and members of the House go back to their districts for extended periods of time to campaign and try and keep their jobs. You know, so one of the things that we've been looking at is, you know, Republicans may try to get um, extra money in here for health care to kind of get right on their mm. positions on health care and, and, you know, lessen some of the disadvantage that they have. Um, because of their advocacy for repealing the Affordable Care Act um, and and things like that. 
Whether that will work, obviously, will remain to be seen. I think Democrats will try and get um, some kind of pet projects in there as well. But I think we could expect this bill probably to just kind of get bigger and bigger um, the closer it gets to being cinched. There's one other issue, though, that'll be a real sticking point that has political implications, too, that we haven't talked about, and that's education and education funding and getting schools open. Mm -hmm. Um, And Republicans are trying to figure out how they could use this legislation to incentivize opening schools. President Trump basically wants to take away federal funding from schools that don't reopen this fall. That will never fly with Democrats, and I think even with a lot of Republicans in Congress. But what, what kind of structure or scheme do they come up with to try and incentivize schools to reopen, um, I think could also have a pretty big impact on, you know, life in America and as a result, the campaigns. Because, um, Nick, is it that Democrats are saying, look, schools can't reopen unless they have the resources to be able to, you know, bring in the PPE and the people who are going to disinfect the schools and make sure that it's that testing can happen. Um, and as long as we get money for that, maybe we'll be more open to the idea that schools can be safely reopened. That's right. I mean, so they say Republicans who are advocating you don't get money unless you reopen, have it backwards. And they say you can't reopen unless we give them money. But who is the federal government to tell these local school districts, um, you know, what they have to do? First of all, you know, um, schools in Houston are in a very different position than schools in Montana. So how can we kind of mandate one federal position? So I think they're interested somewhat paradoxically since Republicans are usually the party of kind of local or state control um, in, in trying to give resources to the schools, but um, give them flexibility. Lee, I'm also wondering, again, it's not just the president that's up for re-election, but you got a lot of Republican senators up for re-election, some of them in states where we're seeing these outbreaks, unfortunately, roar back like Arizona and Texas. Um, I'm wondering if you're sensing that maybe there's there's going to be some tension within the Republican ranks that while McConnell's saying, no, 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 we want to keep the price tag for this bill as low as we possibly can, do you think he's getting pressure from his members who are up for re-election saying, oh, we got to pump as much money as we can into my state? Absolutely. I think there's a very narrow path that he is trying to walk among the members of his conference. And I think there has already been an admission from Republicans that it's certainly possible that not every um, one of them ends up supporting whatever this final package looks like, um, largely because some people are still very concerned about the cost and how extensive it could become. Um, While at the same time, like you mentioned, there are people in battleground states where coronavirus and funding for coronavirus is going to be one of the central issues of their re-election campaigns. And the other big concern that we're hearing from many states is that, you know, their coffers are starting to run dry and they are going to need a lot of uh, support financially. Earlier, we had heard from Republicans this frustration that you know, these states, especially blue states, were using this aid to basically, um, you know, shore up their states that were poorly mismanaged in the first place, right? It's not our fault that your state's doing so. It's not the coronavirus's fault. It's that these states have so many other problems. 
are those concerns still there for Republicans, or do we think that state and local aid to to governments is going to be maybe a more uh, an, an easier issue to resolve? To an extent, I think they are still there in that I believe those same types of statements will be used to try to prevent too much aid from going to states and cities. At the same time, I think it's become very clear that so many states that you might consider red states um, are having the same exact issues um, that other states are having with their reductions um, in sales taxes and the increased costs they're facing from coronavirus. Um, So every state is having this problem. And I think lawmakers being home right now, hearing from constituents, Mm. are very much getting a better sense of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. They've actually been at home. Now they're not able to do some of the same things they did pre-coronavirus, right? Like hosting town halls and actually interacting one-on-one with people, but I'm sure they're getting, you know, an earful from from people back home. Um, Nick, we know that this is obviously the number one priority for Congress. And we also know that they aren't going to stick around much longer after they pass this, especially in an election year. Members of Congress like to get most of their work done by August so they can be back home campaigning in September and October. But we've also seen that uh, there are some priorities, especially for Senate Republicans, uh, that they seem to want to be able to get out there before they leave for the fall. And one of those is doing further investigations into Ukraine, but more specifically into Burisma, the uh, the energy company at the center of the controversy, and specifically Hunter Biden's role in that. There has been some kind of quiet movement um, that hasn't garnered a ton of attention um, in the mainstream press, but Senator Ron Johnson, who leads Um, the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, the kind of main investigative panel in the Senate, has been quietly conducting a couple of investigations that have pretty strong political implications. Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, has been uh, conducting another one. Um, But it's Johnson who is looking at Hunter Biden and his relationship with Burisma, this um, Ukrainian gas company that was, you know, off discussed and, and kind of a central character uh, in the impeachment proceedings. Um, and he has issued a subpoena for one firm that was connected to Hunter Biden. And he's looking, you know, potentially at this week coming up at, at subpoenaing some um, of uh, some top State Department officials, um, and frankly, advisors to uh, Vice former Vice President Biden's presidential campaign to have them come in with an eye towards putting out what he calls the kind of interim report ahead of the election based on what he has found. Now, there has not been anything that's emerged so far from this investigation that's found wrongdoing by Hunter Biden or the former vice president. And, and Democrats have protested royally about this and say it's a waste of time. And it's obviously an attempt to use the House for for political purposes. Um, you know, but it is something um, to watch. And, you know, on the off chance that it does come up with something um, directly related to the vice president, former vice president or his family, you know, that could have an effect um, on the campaign. Now, Senator Johnson and Lindsey Graham are also trying to kind of um, conduct a public reconsideration of the Mueller investigation, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of the other side of this coin, which is about 
you know, changing the frame from President Trump as someone who was investigated, who may have conducted shady actions in his last campaign and in the White House, to somebody that was a victim of overzealous um, investigators and prosecution. Um, we see the Justice Department working on that too, and that's been another big theme to kind of, you know, help President Trump's image. Um, I think at the same time that they're trying to muddy up Mr. Biden's. Um, but you know, because of the pandemic, because of the protest movement this summer, um, because of Biden's commanding lead, we haven't seen these kind of storylines um, hook and hold on um, for a large percentage of the public. Um, so. You know, there are some questions about how long Republicans might stick with them, and we'll have to see in the coming weeks. I think what we had expected was by this point in the campaign that Republican senators were going to maybe even subpoena Hunter Biden or the vice president to come before Congress. Do, do we think that's just not likely at all, or is the is the jury still out on that? I think at this point that is highly unlikely, given Congress's schedule, you know, given the the kind of um, public controversy that would inspire. I mean, the the reason that um, Hunter Biden wasn't called around the impeachment trials that there was not agreement among Republicans that that was even a good idea. I mean, first mm-hmm. of all, who knows what he testified to, um, and it just would look, you know, bringing in a member of of a candidate's family um, as a kind of tit for tat uh, was seen by many, I think, as as kind of an unpalatable. Um, idea and and now I think there's just a recognition that it, um, unless they dig up some new fact, the campaign just simply isn't being fought on this ground. You know, impeachment obviously was kind of the biggest story in the country while it was happening, <laughs> right. but uh, we're in a in the middle of a bigger one now. And I think Republicans, you know, want to spend as much time as they can um, responding to this pandemic and looking like they are, and and um, if they need to, separating themselves from Trump on it um, because they recognize that you know. Uh, votes are going to be cast based on their efficacy as as uh, leaders. I mean, it's really a kind of nuts and bolts election in that way, and up or down, mostly on the president, um, right. but on his party and on you know the individual office holders that are trying to navigate the country through this. Right, Lee. One last thing I wanted to ask you about potential new aid package is the question that I am obsessed with, which is what voting is going to look like in November and whether the states are going to have the capacity to do the sorts of things they need to do to make voting safer. So absentee ballots and, you know, being able to um, have the kind of protective equipment they need at polling places. Is there discussion, as far as you know, about increasing aid to states for conducting elections this fall? There is, and that's a huge priority for Democrats to figure out how much vote-by-mail infrastructure is going to cost Mm -hmm. states and be able to allocate exactly what's needed to carry out some of the things that you mentioned. At this point, that is amount is certainly um, contentious and something that's probably going to be hammered out as part of the upcoming discussions that will happen as well. I think the other complicating factor is the way that vote by mail has been talked about by um, particularly President Donald Trump and um, the dismissive nature he um, has, the dismissive tone, excuse me, he's used about it um, and the way that he's kind of talked about this method as a way for voter fraud. Um, I think that question might complicate, you know, how 
open um, lawmakers um, appear to further funding um, for this particular approach. But at the end of the day, Lee, this talk earlier by Mitch McConnell that there's no way we're going to hit $1 trillion. We want to keep the price tag under a trillion dollars. That doesn't seem likely at all, does it? Yeah, at this point, it, it doesn't seem likely that it's going to um, be under that much. And I think uh, what we'll probably see is something either around there or um, even more so um, in between what um, Republicans have said and the $3 trillion that Democrats um, were interested in spending in their version. Well, Nick Fandos, Lizo, I really appreciate you all coming and talking with me through this. Good luck covering it. Thanks, Amy. Thanks so much. Bye. I'll be back next week. Shout out to the fine folks that made this show. Debbie Daughtry is our board operator, and she was in every day this week at WNYC to put the show on for you, along with our director and sound designer, Jay Cowett. The show was produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob. Holly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Lee Hill is our EP. You can find the show on Twitter. It's at The Takeaway. I'm at Amy E. Walter. Lots of good stuff for you in all of those places. And of course, you can call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.